Welcome to the Westside Gathering Podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here, you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in. Uh, if you're here with us for the first time or joining us online, we have been in a pretty intense passage uh, section of Scripture, Revelation 6 to 20, and it's, um, it, it's, a, it's a difficult one. So if you're here for the first time today, we don't always go through Revelation or uh, passages like this, but we've chosen to jump in headfirst to some of the, the harder parts of Scripture uh, just this season, and so we're doing that. But let me start off with this story, all right? When I was a kid... Uh, growing up uh, in in some you know in a, a network of Italian friends, I'm a I'm a second generation Italian, so born in Canada, but my parents are from Italy, and and uh, you know back in the uh, 70s and 80s, I think when when we had my dad had owned like this Ford Comet. Anybody ever remember what a Ford Comet was? Anyways, so uh, but back then Italians would have um, would have a phrase for um, for Ford, and oh, if you can take this this monitor off, that'd be great. So F-O-R-D. See, Italians would love to buy Oldsmobiles, not Fords, because in Italian, F-O-R-D, I'll say it in Italian, it's fatto oggi, rotto domani. Does anybody know? You know, like, some caught that. So made today, broken tomorrow. That's the transliteration of that. So Ford had a, had a bad reputation in the 70s and 80s. Now, it's not a bad company. There's a ton of Ford Rangers and Ford 150s. It's the best-selling truck, I think, I heard in Canada. But in the day, in the day, that was the reputation it had. You don't buy a Ford because it's made today and broken tomorrow. Who wants to drive a sinking ship, right? And our Comet was a sinking ship. My dad then bought an Oldsmobile. That was the, that was the time frame. We're going to jump into this next part of John's vision here in Revelation. And it's significant because it's helping us recognize what will last. It's helping us recognize what will last because John, in this letter here and in this part of the vision that he receives and passes on to us, does not want us to be part of a sinking ship. All right, we're going to read a couple of passages from Revelation 16 and then into 17. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me or follow on the screen. There is some salty words in this text, um, just one or two, and, um, but it's, it's part of the scriptures and we want to jump into it and read it. So here's uh, the end of 16, uh, verse 17 says this, the seventh angel poured his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Down to the end of verse 19, says, God remembered great Babylon and gave her the wine cup of the fury of his wrath. We're coming to the end of the, the seven bowls, which is another reiteration of seven, this kind of theme of judgment that's in these sections here. But now we get chapter 17 and says this, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great whore who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. And with the wine of those fornication, the inhabitants of the earth have become drunk. So she carried me away, he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her fornication. And on her forehead, we talked about foreheads last week, was written a name, a mystery, 
Babylon, the great mother of whores and of earth's abominations. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. I'm going to just stop there. This is a, an incredible text, an incredible part of John's vision. John is, again, like the beginning of Revelation, caught up, brought by the Spirit, not in like Revelation 4 and 5 where he sees what's taking place in the heavenly realms, but now given a vision of what's going on within, behind the scenes of the empires of the world, the cities that the seven churches are involved in. And, you know, we're almost at the end of this section. It comes to the end in chapter 20, and then we shift into something else. But the images and the metaphors and the layers keep kind of piling all up, and ultimately it's a wake-up call to the churches that are receiving this message. We talked about this last winter. These seven churches in Asia Minor are receiving these messages, and they're hearing this over and over again in the series of seven, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. There are these layered, layered, kind of like we talked about a few weeks ago, like a big musical chord or an orchestral music frame where, boom, everything happens at once, and we hear these layers. And it's all telling us the same story, but it gives us a layer of what it looks like. And so it's all about this judgment that God has on the injustices of the world and the brokenness and rebellion of the world. But it's also a comforting reminder as we look at this because God is not blind to the injustices of the world. God is not blind to the persecution of those who follow his son, Jesus Christ. And so in this passage, we're introduced to another character. Last week, we were introduced to a woman, a dragon, two beasts. This week, we're introduced to another woman, very different from the woman last week who bore a son and God rescued her, very different from the woman we're going to meet in chapter 21 and 22 eventually, which is called the bride of Christ. This woman that John sees is seductive, is sexually immoral, the salty language. She's called the mother of whores, a harlot, a prostitute. She fornicates with the kings of the earth. In case that is a dated word for you, it means that she has sex outside of a committed covenant relationship. And she has lured the inhabitants of the earth to get drunk on her. In other words, like to get filled with, with her desires, with her lust, with her purposes. And because John in this letter is often exposing Rome and the empire in this letter, this woman becomes a metaphor for something. Becomes a metaphor for people. It becomes a metaphor for a city. And we can get this because there's two deities in the Roman Empire that was connected to Rome. One was the goddess of Roma, and one was the Roma Eterna, and they were both female deities that were worshipped at the local cults, that were worshipped in the local temples, that people, um, in a sense, submitted to or gave uh, allegiance to or trusted. And so what we're seeing here is an extension of chapters 12 to 14, but now the, intent, the attention is on this people, this a city, uh, where people live and move and eat and buy and sell and raise families and build culture. And this woman or is given another name, Babylon. Babylon is a familiar term for a Jewish audience, and it's a familiar term for those who read the scriptures. Israel was exiled to Babylon. And Babylon was often a place where Israel, God's people, would see it as a place that we're not worshiping Israel's God, we're worshiping foreign gods, and we're not living in the ways of God, we're living in their own ways, and did not follow the ways of God, they followed their own ways. And so when this image of, or the city Babylon comes into the picture, we're automatically meant to think about something 
that is different than God's people, something that is different than Jerusalem, something that is different than the new creation, something that is different than the kingdom of God. It's a metaphorical city that's not following the ways of God, a metaphorical people. Now, John's not just referring to Rome because these churches getting this letter were in Asia Minor, Ephesus, Philadelphia, Smyrna, like the modern, our modern-day cities today, Montreal, New York, L.A., Vancouver, whatever it is. But he's metaphorically exposing Rome or any city that is an antithesis to God's kingdom, to God's city, to God's people. So there's a metaphor of another metaphor of another metaphor. The woman is a metaphor for Babylon, and Babylon is a metaphor for the anti-city of God, for the anti-people of God. Metaphor for a metaphor for a metaphor. Say that four times. That'll mess you up. And this woman is sitting on the beast. This beast that represents the Roman Empire and all its systems. It's as if the woman sitting on the beast is benefiting from the, the ungodly systems of the world. It's like the, the woman or the city is, is just is like kind of closing their blinders off. Doesn't matter what the empires are doing. Doesn't matter what the systems are doing. That is, doesn't matter how corrupt or unjust they are as long as I can benefit from them. So she sits on top of the systems. And John uses an interesting word there. He says, he uses the word fornication. It could be sexual, but it's probably an umbrella description probably a label of any practices that lure people away from God, any practices that lure people away from the covenant relationship they have with God, anything that would violate their relationship with the Lamb, Jesus. Fornication in a, in a marriage relationship would mean betrayal. And fornication in a relationship we have with God would mean betrayal to the one we're allegiant to, to the one we're loyal to. That's why in the next few chapters at the end, there's a different woman. She's called the bride of Christ. She's not called the, the mother of whores. She's called the bride of Christ. So it's different. And John wants to clearly get the church's attention on what Babylon represents. Could be Rome or the city they live in. And it's often, that it's often trying to lure them away to worship its life and its purposes. And when John writes this, part of the desire here, it's a, it's a prophetic word to them to expose the injustices of their world, to expose the injustices that take place uh, even behind the scenes in the city, to expose the uh, idolatry, anything that worships God, gives full attention to it instead of God, finds its life and purposes instead of God. Several years ago, we did a series during Advent, Advent on love, and we talked about our mall. You walk into our mall, it's kind of like a modern temple. Ah, oh, the gap is so hot, right? You walk in and you're like, yes, I worship at whatever, right? And, and I, I know you don't do that. I know, I know we don't do that when we walk into Apple or the Gap or RW or Starbucks or whatever. But our modern system is the things we love and depend on and that fuel our lives or we fuel it and it's a vice versa thing. John is trying to expose the injustices but also the idolatry that the city celebrates at the heart of the whole empire. There's one author, his name is Michael Gorman, one of the better books on Revelation called Reading Revelation Responsibly. And he lists six or seven uh, characteristics of the empire. I'm going to just put them on the screen. The first one is domination, that the, an em the empire, not a empire, but the system, the ideology of an empire is, a, is, an, is an idea of a domination. It, it rules oppressively. It promises false security, power, false prosperity, and it's used selfishly. It's usually expansive. If I can get bigger and bigger and bigger, 
And Rome was like that. It's like, I want to go there, I want to go there, I want to go there, I want Ephesus, I want Philippi, I want this, 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 this. And then it, hands, it, it has its hands and feet beyond its land into different reaches. So it claims greatness and fame and wealth and control. But it, it appears attractive on the outside. Man, what you get is awesome. What we experience is so diverse. What we achieve is so incredible. What you can accumulate is so amazing. But on the inside, we don't always see what produces that. On the inside, we don't always see. We have B, but we don't always see what, what happens from A to B. We benefit from B, but we don't see what happens from A to B. On the inside, we see that there's injustices going on. Some of the luxuries we have produced, or we have and we use in our culture, sometimes are produced by injustice. Sometimes are produced by human trafficking. Sometimes are produced by organized crime. Sometimes are produced by exploitation. And this is a rabbit hole. Don't worry. I'm not going to give you a list of what to do and what not to do, where to buy. What not. That's not my role. But we don't always see what brings us life and what we use. But when we dig a little, sometimes we say, oh, I might abandon this product. I might abandon this thing because I saw what happened from A to B. I'm only using B, but now I saw what happened from A to B. That's something that goes on often in empires. They're ultimately against God's kingdom. There's war against the lamb. We read in chapter 17, verse 14. There's the oppressed are often, they're often forced to give up their control. And they have no means to stand up for themselves. Usually the empires create gaps of rich and poor. Because somehow it helps the empire sustain itself. But one of the, one of the characteristics is that the empire usually implodes on itself. It's a self-inflicted wound that brings the whole system down. And why is it that over centuries, no empire ever lasts? There's all, an empire comes and an empire falls. An empire comes and an empire falls. An empire comes and an empire falls. And even in our world system today, whoever is the strongest will not be the strongest forever because empires don't last. Empires often implode on themselves. Self-inflicted wounds that bring the whole system down. And this is often part of God's judgment that we read here. And here's what John, the image John uses to get our attention. He uses a prostitute to paint this picture. And I, I, I grieve even using the word because I know that, that there's such a hurt and damage and manipulation that will lead people into the, into the sex trade industry in our day and era. But that word that he uses from an ancient time period is, is significant because he's painting, he's, he's giving us a caricature of what's going on. And he wants to highlight the worst parts of what's going on in the empire to get our attention. You know who did this really well? DC Comics did this really well. In the Batman trilogy, the Dark Knight, or any of the, the Batman stories, when you see this face, I'm sorry, I'm going to show it to you, but when you see this face, can you show it? Is it there? Is it not there? Are we going to, is it up to our imagination? Oh, it's not working? Oh, okay, I'm talking. Okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> I was in my own world. Um, okay, picture the Joker. <laughs> Uh, and I don't even have to tell you like what the Joker looks like. You automatically, it's either one from one movie or another movie or from one comic or another comic, but you can see the Joker's face, right? The Joker in the Batman stories is a caricature, right, of the pain that goes on in cities, but also the injustice that happens in a city. 
And the Joker is such an extreme character that you can't forget his face. You can't forget his walk. You can't forget his laugh. You can't forget his movement. Sometimes you feel for the Joker because you know he's been wounded by the city. And so, but you rarely can cheer for the Joker because you know that he reflects the injustices of the city. And the Joker is a great modern example of what a character is, a caricature is, highlighting the worst that goes on in a city and in DC comics like Gotham to reflect what's happening underneath the surface. And listen to John wor John's words. Babylon the Great is a mother of horrors and of Earth's abominations. She is fornicating with the kings, and humans get drunk on her. This is <laughs> language that's like, <gasps> oh my gosh, what? But you can't forget it. It's now like, oh, John, you just gave us this image that is now stuck in our minds, and we can't forget it. That's the point. We're not supposed to forget it. We're supposed to be so surprised. We're like, this is what's happening under the surface. I never see it. And it's pointing to Rome because Rome is the center of the empire. Verse 9 in chapter 17 says, this calls again. Remember last week, same thing. This calls for a mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Also, there are seven kings. And then later in verse 12, and the ten horns that you saw are ten kings. In that area of Rome, there were seven hills. They still exist today. The seven kings could be a reference to the fullness of the emperors that would lead. The ten kings could be a connection to the ruling class in the city, in the empire. And it's pointing us to our city, to any city, to any nation. Here's this, this quote. It's a little longer, so listen to it because it's not on the screen. It's from Bruce Metzger. He says, Babylon is allegorical for the idolatry that any nation commits when it elevates material abundance, military prowess, technological sophistication, imperial grandeur, racial pride, and any other glorification of the creature over the creator. Then he says, the message of the book of Revelation concerns God's judgment, not only of persons, but also of nations, and in fact, of all principalities and powers, which is to say, all authorities, corporations, institutions, structures, bureaucracies, and the like. Now, this does not mean that we cannot function in our world in some of the things that are mentioned, but it means that often under the surface, there are these systems that have been co-opted by the influence of Satan or the dragon. And two things that happens in these couple of chapters. The first thing is, we've already been introduced to this, it's communication of God's judgment. Chapter 6 to 20 is God's judgment with a crazy Disney light show. Like, that, that's, what it, that's what it is. It's trying to help us see that God will bring judgment. Back in chapter 6 to 11, the, the, the souls of the saints underneath the altar in the vision of heaven, they're just calling out to God, God, how long will you not act? How long will you keep us in this spot? How long will this stuff keep going on? When will you act? When will you bring justice? When will you judge? How long will your people suffer under this? But in chapter 17 to 18, judgment is finally happening. It's the extension of all of the seventh, the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, the seventh bowl. It's an extension of it. And we read here, as we read, in, right, it is done. Or verse 19, God remembered great Babylon and gave her the wine cup of the fury of his wrath. 
I will show you the judgment of the great whore who is seated on many mountains. So whether it's Babylon or the systems that are influenced by Satan in our world, here's the, here's the truth of this text. They will not last. They will not last. We know that this judgment will be quick and certain and unexpected. And that's both good and bad. It's bad because when, this, when the fullness of this just judgment happens, any of us that have relied on this and this and that, it's gonna be, it seems like it's going to be vanished in a second. It's like we've put all our money in this and boom, it's gone. We've put all our identity in this and boom, it's gone. We've put all our sense of, of purpose in this and boom, it's gone. But, but, but the good thing is, is that God's judgment and justice is certain. Here's, ver, here's a few verses. Verse 8 um, Verse eight says, I got like pages because there's like three chapters today. Therefore, her plagues will come in a single day. The end of verse 10, for in one hour your judgment has come. Verse 17, for in one hour all this wealth has been laid to waste. The end of verse 19, for in one hour she has been laid waste. And then you see the responses to this judgment of the people who've been invested in this system. Verse 9, the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Why? Because they've invested so much and they see Babylon or their system or what they've been relying on go away. Verse 11, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Verse 15, the merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Verse 17, and all shipmasters and seafarers, sailors, and all who trade, whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. And you know what's so, the, the, more, the most sad part of this is verses 21 to 22 in chapter 18 because there are such good things in our city. There's such beautiful things in our world. There's such wonderful things when we walk into our city and walk into our world and we experience nature and we experience technology and we experience creativity and we experience good business and we experience art and we experience books. But look at what happens even in the middle of this because, because, because of the corruption, because of, of the rebellion, because justice will come, all the other things around it get affected. Verse 21, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, with such violence, Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down and will be found no more. But listen, look at these good things as well that will be found no more. The sound of harpists and minstrels and flutists and trumpeters and electric guitarists and bass players and drummers uh, will be heard in you no more. And the artisan of any trade will be found in you no more. And the sound of the millstone, business and production and making of bread, will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride, the beauty of relationship, right, will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the magnates of the earth, and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery so sad that everything gets swept under when the world gets drunk on Babylon's wine. So sad. And yet God's judgment sees even humanity implode on itself. Verse 16 and 17 in chapter 17 says this. Where are we here? 
and the ten horns that you saw, verse 16, and they and the beast will hate the whore. So now they're like, come against each other. And they will make her desolate and naked. They will devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purposes by agreeing to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. There's this implosion that takes place. And it's so sad because something happens that you just cannot understand why it all comes to ruin. And it's part, partly part of God's judgment on the world around. And it's unfortunate because we end up seeing this kind of unfold, but sometimes we miss it under the surface. And why is this the case? Because there's injustices and idolatry in the world. And God's full kingdom will not reign over corruption and rebellion and injustices. And even the injustices that we see in our world, we know in our hearts, just like the souls under the altar were crying, we also say, God, how long? How long will these injustices take place? How long will greed and um, you know, love of self continue to rule so many things in our world? So why? Because injustices and idolatry are present. Why? Because God's people, his people who he loves, are also caught up in that and, and, and damaged in the process. And all are affected by the injustices. I want you to remember that. This is really important. This is at the end of chapter 19. It says, and in you was found the blood of the prophets and the saints. So what's that? That's just how the saints, God's people, are, are affected. But then, and all of you have been slaughtered on earth. In other words, everyone is affected by this injustice. How long, God? But he says it will happen. Justice will come. So it's a, it's a communication of judgment. But here's the next thing, and it's, I just want to hit this briefly. It's a call to worship. All of chapter 18, as weird as it sounds when you read it, it's like a worship song. I mean, we wouldn't sing it on Sunday morning. Fallen, fallen, Babylon are you. You know, we've caught, we're caught up in your sins, you know? I mean, maybe Matt can lead that next week. That would be awesome. But, but the reality is, is, this is, it's more like a spiritual than a worship song. It, 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 as, as it is being sung or, or spoken, it elaborates on truth. So John's like, if the prophecy didn't get you, let me sing you a song. <laughs> because you, people remember songs. So this whole song is sung in chapter 18, right? And it starts off, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It has become a dwelling place of demons, a haunt of every foul spirit, a haunt of every foul bird, and a haunt of every foul and hateful beast. The nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. Man, what lyrics. But that's part of it. But here's verse 4 is really what calls us to worship. Verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. This is a call to the church. This is a call to the church that has, that has often been tempted to be part of the systems of the world. And the song is calling us out, say, come out of her, my people. Come out of Babylon. Come out of the influence of this woman. In other words, do not worship what will not last. Because ultimately, Babylon and the beast, 
They, they want to make us worship them. They want to make us depend on them. They want to make us find life and identity and purpose and even eternal security in them to give it priority, to give it attention, to give it affection, to give it dependence. And that's why I think this image with this salty language, the mother of all whores, I know, even when I say it, I'm like, why am I saying this in church? But it's, it's in here, right? This metaphor is a metaphor for worship gone bad. It's a metaphor for worship gone bad. Babylon lies to us about what gives us life and purpose. And whore worship is different than bride worship. The, next, the last few chapters. And the image is striking. Why? Because oh, it's... It's the image of paid sex. And when someone pays for sex, it's lost its beauty and it's lost its meaning. And once you pay Babylon for intimacy and meaning and purpose, worship is no longer relational. Worship is transactional. It's no longer because I love you and you love me because, Lord, I see all, the, all your goodness and you've invited me into this relationship. Now we turn and when we worship Babylon, it's, oh, oh, you're asking me to do this, and I'm going to buy this, and I'm going to buy this, and then I'm going to get caught in. It's the, here's the difference. Jesus says, you are bought with a price, and I paid the price. Babylon says, I can get this for you on wholesale, 10 bucks. That's a big difference. But the world around us loves to lure us into that, right? Man, I can get this to you for so cheap. You just don't realize that the end result is crummy. Jesus says, you're bought with a price. I already went to the cross for you. Jesus paid that. Why? Because in new creation, the church is called the bride of Christ. See, there's a difference between the whore and the bride. Sorry for the analogy. There's a difference between the immediate and the intimate. There's a difference between easy and eternal. There's a difference between cheap and covenantal. And so these words in verse 4 are the strongest words in this chapter. Come out of her. Leave her. Don't depend on her. Don't be caught up with her. Don't allow yourself to be fooled thinking that this will bring you life and purpose and eternity. Don't be deceived or caught up or immersed in this. Eugene Peterson says, the whore is a wake-up call to help us discern what we're tempted to worship instead of genuine worship. And what does that look like? It looks like us in these moments, like we said last week, discern and distinguish. How can we come out of the cultural systems that do not reflect God's kingdom? Now look, Jesus said, you live in the world. Just said, don't be of the world, right? It, it, we still live in our world, but we have to recognize how do we respect the things in our world? How do we even use the things in our world without being so caught up with those cultural systems that do not reflect God's kingdom? And that's not easy. I'm not giving you the perfect answer here. It takes discernment. It takes prayer. It takes being a church community together. It takes listening to the gospel story over and over again. It takes uh, talking with one another. It takes inviting a friend and a spiritual friend to say, I'm trying to discern this, you know, are these, you know, is, is this reflect God's kingdom? But coming out of the cultural systems that don't reflect God's kingdom is part of our call to worship. And coming out doesn't mean not living there because you're in the city and we should be in the city for the city, with the city, but still learn and discern how to resist any anti-kingdom values because Babylon's just an example of anti-kingdom, anti-God's kingdom. And how do we do that partly? 
We don't do that by making everybody follow kingdom ideas. We do it as, as living witnesses. We live as a witness. So you and I live, our life becomes a witness of the coming city. Here's Babylon, our life becomes a witness of the new Jerusalem. Here's the cities of the world, our life becomes a witness of the new creation. This is our act of worship. See, sometimes we think worship is about lyrics. Worship is about lifestyle. Lyrics are great. Lyrics are important. When we sing today, and man, I was singing the chorus of that last song, and it just, you know, just drew me in to be reminded that I want my life to depend on him. Lyrics are important, but worship is when I walk out of this place and the life I live is a life surrendered to the Lord following Jesus. That's how we live as witnesses. We live as witnesses. To live as a witness is not forcing the world to follow the rules of God's kingdom. For me to live as a witness is not telling my neighbor, hey, you live like me. Hey, I hate what you're doing. What you're doing, like Jesus would hate what you're doing. Can you please, you know, and then just do this, you know. That, that's not what it means to live as a, as a witness. My neighbor has no framework, no understanding, no desire to have Jesus lead their life. Or maybe they do, but I'm just supposing they don't, right? And if they don't, why would they follow his ways? Why would they say, yes, I want to be part of God's kingdom? So living as a witness is not forcing the world to follow the rules of God's kingdom. There's no need to force the world. We are called to live as witnesses in the world, as is living in local presence in the world. God will bring judgment in his timing. That's what these chapters are about. God will expose the corruption and injustices in our world. God will execute ju justice. Just please remember that. God will execute justice. I might pronounce just ju judgment because it's in, it's in the Bible. But if I execute judgment, I've just stepped out of my role and I've taken on God's role. If I, ju if I execute judgment, I have now just stepped out of my role and I've taken God's role. God executes judgment. I can talk about it. I can alert people to it like we're doing today. But I do not execute. You do not execute. We live as witnesses in the world around us of God's coming kingdom. There's no need to force God's values on the world around us. The church is never meant to be a moral or spiritual police in the world. We're never meant to say, this is not God's kingdom. You know? But we're meant to live it in such a way where our worship as God's living in local presence becomes a faithful witness. And so think about this. Babylon sits on the beast and benefits from the systems of Babylon. The church is called to be a city on a hill. The church is called to be a city on the hill. Being fueled being led, being directed, being convicted by the Spirit of God and the kingdom of God. Two different analogies. Babylon benefits from the empire. The church benefits from God's kingdom. And here's just one piece in this. And I think we often ask this question, well, where does persecution come from? Because the saints are hurt in the middle of this See, when someone to cho chooses to live in contrast to cultural systems, they often get persecuted. And yes, there were Christians who got persecuted because they said, Jesus is Lord. But, but please remember this. Rome didn't just persecute Christians because of their faith in Christ. Their faith in Christ, few group of people in a home, singing some songs, breaking bread, having an awesome meal, sitting at the table, in those walls around that table looked very different than Rome, but 
They, if they didn't bother Rome, Rome wouldn't have bothered them. But part of it is that as they were loyal to Jesus, as they were loyal to Jesus, they began living a life that was contra contrasting to the kingdom around them, to the empire around them. It wasn't just what happened in those homes. It was that they were starting to make real decisions in their business, in their relationships, in their politics, at the, at, at, in the local markets that reflected their allegiance to Jesus, and now that caught Rome's attention. Richard Bauckham says, their faith in Christ led them to disassociate themselves from the various evils and systems that they end up suffering for it. They ended up suffering for it. And remember this, the book of Revelation is a message to the church, not the world. The, this letter we hold on our hands is for us. It's not for the world. John didn't write this so, the, so Rome would read it. In fact, he was cautious. He had a code system for, for Nero. So in case they read it, they would, oh, gosh, we want to make sure that you know, we're okay here. Revelation was written for the church to assure the church of God's judgment coming, but also for the church to make sure its worship was genuine and its discipleship was loyal to Jesus. Eugene Peterson says it was meant, John wrote this, to prevent Christians from quitting from quitting the enduringly arduous life of worship in favor of something which appears religious, looks better, and is easier. The arduous life of worship, obviously that means more than singing a song. It's not that hard to sing a song. But it is hard to live the song. And so this letter is to, to lead us and to guide us not to get caught up with what appears religious, looks better, looks easier, is easier. So here's the ultimate question. I'm going to ask um, Alex to come up as we just wrap up in a moment of reflection. I want to just ask you this one question, really simple. Do you want to align yourself with the coming kingdom of God and the new Jerusalem? Or do you want to align yourself with Babylon, the sinking ship? That's the question I think we have before us in this text. Do you want to align your... And this is, I think, part of why John just had this starking image to help the church even in that time because they were even so small in the empire around them just to wake up to this possibility, this truth. Do you want to align yourself with the coming kingdom of God, the coming new Jerusalem we're going to read about later on in this book, or the Babylon that's a sinking ship? That's a question we ask ourselves. And as we just start to move into this moment of reflection, you can start playing when you want, Alex. Is just, you know, we started off with this, with this image of, of Ford, right, back in the 70s and 80s. And I love this one line in Revelation 17, 8. I'm going to end with it. 17, 8 says, The beast that you saw is not and is about to ascend from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. You notice that line? You know what it says about about God in Revelation, the one who was, who is, and is to come. Look what it says. The beast that you saw is not and is about to ascend from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. That is a sinking ship. That is made today, broken tomorrow. That's what that is. And the systems of our world and the empires of our world, as amazing as they can be in a certain season, in a certain moment, and as much as we can even benefit from them from time to time in our lives, we must recognize they are sinking ships because there are often things under the surface we don't even see that are injustices and ideology. 
And this prophecy says, come out of her. Come out of her. Don't, don't stay with the sinking ship because new creation is coming. New Jerusalem is coming. There's a city and a people that you are called to be part of because of your faith in Jesus. Do you want to be aligned with the coming kingdom of God and New Jerusalem or with Babylon, the sinking ship? I'll just give you a moment to respond to that, to think about that. If you're new here today, if you're just considering faith, that's a big, it's a big question. And you maybe need time to really consider who Jesus is and what the gospel is. And that's why we're here, that you keep coming back and listening, growing, so you can come to an understanding of why we think the vision of, of Jesus is so beautiful and wonderful. But if you're here today, maybe even ready to make a step, even in your heart, Verbally with your words, would you say you just that you choose Jesus? You long, you want to follow Jesus, His ways, His kingdom, His lordship. It's a simple enough step, but a big implication. So, if you're doing that today, please let us know. We'd love to talk with you and, and help you in, in that next step. Pray with you. Maybe our prayer team can come to the, to the left here and just be ready. But for all of us here, that question is important because John is writing to the church. This is not an evangelistic call. He's not writing to the Roman Empire to come to faith. He's writing to the church. Church, do you realize? Where are you aligned? With God's kingdom or a sinking ship? Talk with the Lord for a moment quietly, your mind and your heart.
you want prayer in this moment, I'm just going to invite you, just really, I think it's sometimes a little fearful, or not fearful, but it seems like a big thing to just say, Lord, that's a hard thing to, to really disassociate ourselves from, from some things we really love, or don't even, you know, recognize that are a force in this world. And so just, if you want prayer for that, just, just want you to lift up your hands. I'm, I'm asking for prayer for this because we need the courage of the Spirit, the leadership of the Spirit, the voice of the Spirit in our hearts and our lives to discern, to recognize. So if that's you today. If you want to just, for, for prayer, I just want to pray for you specifically. That you recognize, if you're recognizing that you need the work of the Spirit to distinguish and discern the alignment of God's kingdom in your life to the alignment of a sinking ship. I admit it. I acknowledge it. If you want to pray for that, just raise your hand with me and we'll pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you because you are good and yet you are holy and just. And it's such a tension to live in our world with such amazing things that you have created. You have invited us to use and be a part of and also contribute to the world. And yet at the same time, Lord, there's also this brokenness and rebellion and idolatry and injustices that take place. While we so long for new creation, we know that we live in an in-between time. And so help us, God, to discern and distinguish the things in this world, the things in our life, the things in our city that reflect the ways of this woman, Babylon and the beast. And help us to be fully aligned with our Lamb, our Lord, our King, our Savior, Jesus. And Lord, I know that there's so many that feel the injustices of the world and they long for your justice. They are in oppression. They have been exploited. They have been hurt. They have constantly been the underdog. They have been persecuted. And so your judgment on these systems become a joyful waterfall for them. So God, just give us the wisdom and discernment to see this as it's meant to be seen and to live daily in this in-between time as we look forward to new creation. Only down the road will some of us be able to say, I don't want to be part of a sinking ship. In the meantime, sometimes the sinking ship feels pretty good. So give us the wisdom to understand the ship we're sailing on. We long for your kingdom to be our priority, to be our North Star, to be the life that we live and breathe, to be what, to be the framework of our worship. And for those who are making decisions today to step forward either for the first time or an invitation of your spirit to work in them as they desperately need, like I desperately need, God. We just welcome how you're going to respond in that way. 
In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody says, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com forward slash giving. Until next time, peace.